0: Yes. Amen. Thank you. And good morning. Good to be with you guys and those watching online this morning. Um, And excited to get into the word with you. I am excited. I'm getting now that we're past Halloween. I'm not one of those that has like my Christmas tree up from September 5th. Onwards, there's some crazy ones of you. We appreciate you ushering in the Christmas spirit. But now that we're past Halloween, moving towards Thanksgiving, I'm getting in that holiday mood. I'm excited to celebrate the holidays with you. Obviously, moments like Thanksgiving and Christmas have spiritual ramifications, right? They're not just uh, physical celebrations. They are also spiritual celebrations. Excited to jump into that with you but often I'm reminded as we approach the holidays that we celebrate some of the good things and some of the wins in life in the midst of a world that is still pretty broken, right? And as people that often are aware of that brokenness right around us, and you know, whether it's something where you're watching online through social media or the news and you're seeing all the stuff around the world whether that's the war in, between Israel and, and Palestine and some of those spaces there or whether it's some of the other things that aren't getting as much media attention but are definitely still happening around the world, we live in a broken world. But then we can kind of look closer to home and say, man, there's some things that go on in my workplace that probably aren't the way it should go or there's some things happening in my family right now that I know are not the way it's supposed to be and it's built into the human spirit Though we can taint it, it's built into the human spirit to recognize right and wrong and to realize that sometimes things are just not the way they are supposed to be. And the Bible speaks to that often, and and the Bible leads us to transformation and change. But if you have ever tried to change anything on your own, Whether that's you trying to change your own personal habits, right? You're trying to change a habit that you've grown up with in your family. You're trying to change your eating habits. Trying to change your thought process habits. Trying to change your speaking habits. Any kind of personal change is way harder than you think it's going to be, right? I've definitely struggled with change at different moments in my life. But then if you take one of those steps to try to bring change in the world around you, that's pretty hard too. Culture change and, and global change, those are really difficult things, And so far the human track record is that we're not very effective on our own at any of those changes, personal or global. But what scripture leads us to is that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the only one who can bring that needed change to the world around us. He's the one who through the cross and the resurrection offered change both internal and global and he is the one who still to this day is using his church to bring change one life at a time to the world around us. That is the purpose of the church. It's the story of the church and it's why we've been studying our way through the book of Acts in the New Testament. We've been looking at the story of the church post-Jesus, right? Jesus ascended to heaven, is waiting there to return. There's all sorts of reasons behind that but in this season, he has empowered his church by his Holy Spirit to bring the needed change in the world around us. And yet that change isn't brought in a vacuum, is it? That change is brought often in the face of brokenness and sometimes struggle and opposition, and we've been seeing that in the book of Acts as well. And we'll see that again this morning. If you, if you were with us last week, we talked about the first Christian martyr, Stephen, a newly appointed leader in the church, a guy who was doing lots of good things. He's talking about Jesus, and through him, the Holy Spirit's doing healings and miracles and all sorts of other good stuff, but when Jesus is glorified for some reason, There's always opposition to that. We'll talk about that in a moment. But in this case, a group of kind of radical Jews led by a guy named Saul that will come up later in the story ends up interrogating this guy, falsely accusing him, and murdering him. And as often happens, when abusive leadership gets away with things, the abuse only gets worse. And that's what we're gonna see here in the beginning of Acts chapter eight. You can turn there with me, and we will see how the church responds once again to some of the opposition and brokenness in the world around, around them. Starting in verse 1, it says, Saul, here's this guy again, was one of the witnesses of Stephen's murder, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all of the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. And I want to pause there to realize that this is not just a a Bible story meant to illustrate a point. This was a real historical moment. And it's a historical moment that unfortunately is like so many other moments in history where people are uh, falsely accused, people are dragged out of their homes, imprisoned or threatened with death based on not agreeing with the powers that be. Right? And that can happen in both Christian and non-Christian settings, but since this moment, this was not the last time that Christians have been treated like this. In fact, Christians around the world today in certain places are still being hunted like this, threatened like this. And that is, by the way, if you're not aware, a horrible injustice, right? Right? And that's true of many people in non-Christian situations, too, where the power dynamic allows one group to abuse another group. We're seeing that. And, and even if you're watching some of the conflicts in the world around us, you see people groups at war with each other. And horrible things can come out of that, right? Anyone who's been a part of, of war, and we have many people that serve in, in, in the military in this church, you realize like that's not, that's not the end goal is to get into war. And rarely are there any any wholesale winners when that happens, right? Horrible injustices happen in the world and they happen to God's people. We're not immune to that. And it's helpful for us to remember that Scripture explains these injustices not in the context of a human versus human war, but Scripture explains these injustices in the context of a spiritual war. In the context of a spiritual battle that's been there all along between God, the rightful God, a good God who created us in this world to be good, and a group of rebellious angels led by one that the Bible calls Satan the Accuser. And Satan the Accuser did not not succeed in taking over heaven, but he has succeeded in gaining authority in this world. How? By human choice. And so the Bible, uh, the Bible puts so much of the brokenness in this world in the context of a spiritual battle between God and this demonic enemy, and that human beings, though we sometimes see that conflict in a human-to-human sense, human beings are actually just representatives of whatever higher power that we serve. And I want to say that again, this, this hits us a little weird as, as Western kind of secular humanist cultural people, many of us in this room, that you actually are a representative of some spiritual power. You are. You are the representative of some either true God or so-called God because that is what you were built to do. We were built to be imagers, to be reflectors of the one true God. You read that right there in Genesis 1. We were built to be little reflectors of a really big God, each in our own way. But when we, when we engage in sin, we begin to reflect someone other than the one true God, don't we? And, and we actually, where we were created to be free servants of the living good God, when we engage in sin, we become slaves of the wannabe not-so-good God. We become reflectors of that not-so-good God, and that can get worse and worse and worse until we're actually doing horrible atrocities, and like Saul, sometimes thinking we're justified in it. Right? We are all part of a spiritual war that the Bible contextualizes for us. In one place the Bible says it kind of succinctly is in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. The Apostle Paul described it this way. Ironically, the Apostle Paul, who was the Saul in this story later transformed, says this. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So though we struggle against people, that's not who our real struggle is with. It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers. These represent different demonic forces that have been given authority in this world through human sin. Of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So we end up being players in this war between God and his enemies. And we represent one side or the other. And there are forces of evil that through human sin have established what the Bible calls the kingdom of this world. A.K.A. the kingdom of the devil. And we wonder why so much brokenness runs rampant in this world. And it's because humans were given authority over this world by God to image God in it. And when we sinned and when we continue to sin, we give the devil our authority to do what he wants with this world. And what does he want? Disease, death, all sorts of disruption and destruction. He wants to destroy everything that God has made. Interestingly, that's exactly what Saul in this story sets out to do, to destroy what God has been doing in his church, right? Saul is imaging the devil in this story. But here's the good news, right? Are you ready? For, you're like, Caleb, please move on. Here's the good news. In, in Colossians chapter one, we, it says it this way. I love, it. I love this kind of succinct phrase. I don't have it on the screen for you, but you can write it down, Colossians 1.13, and actually Colossians 1 and 2 are a great picture of how Jesus and the cross impact the spiritual battle Around us, but in in verse 13 of chapter 1, it says that God the Father has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. That means belonging to the devil. Another translation says the dominion, the dictatorship, the control of darkness. God the Father has rescued us from the dictatorship of darkness. Thank you. How? By transferring us, it's a citizenship term. He's transferred our citizenship from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. That's what it says. But it goes on and it says, he's transferred us into the kingdom of his son. How? Who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins through his own blood. So when Jesus on the cross, by his own blood, forgave our sins, he purchased our freedom from a kingdom where we were slaves to darkness and we now are citizens of his kingdom. That's where that whole idea comes from. Our ability to represent the right God is restored by Jesus on the cross. That's a big deal. And so now we learn from Jesus, okay, Jesus, how do I do life again? How did you intend for me to do life again? And the beautiful thing that we see through this is that though the enemy will often seem to win victories like he does in this story, right? It seems like, man, the church is getting their their butts kicked, like they're getting dragged out, they're getting chased out, like they're getting beat up, Stephen got killed, come on! And there will be moments where we feel like we're getting our butts kicked, I don't know if you're supposed to say that in a message. What's the like Christian, we're getting our, I don't know, we're losing. It feels like you're losing. But here's the beautiful thing is that Jesus never loses. He never loses. Jesus can change the worst circumstances into winning situations. And though we haven't seen it yet in this passage, that's actually what's happening. There's a clue in verse one. When, did you notice when these believers are scattered? Which, by the way, means these believers were chased out of their city. They were chased out of their home. They were chased away from their belongings. They could not, anything that had brought comfort to them before was stripped away from them. They were suddenly refugees fleeing with only their children wondering, how am I going to feed my kids tomorrow? What am I going to do for work? Where are we going to live? So this is, not, this is not an easy day in the life of a believer. But where did they get scattered to? It says they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, which is a clue of what God's about to do. Because if you'll remember the other place that these two locations were mentioned, and they were they, these two places are not, not friendly. Judea and Samaria are rival communities. They don't like each other. But Jesus brought them up in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In his mission statement of the book of Acts, he said in the second part, he said, You, church, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so though, in these first three verses, we read this this attack of the enemy, represented by Saul and these radical Jews, it seems like the enemy is winning. Right away, even in their refugee moment, we see clues that God is about to fulfill a next part of his mission. We see clues that Jesus is actually expediting the calling of these Christians, And so look at what we read in verse 4, how they responded. It says, but the believers who were scattered, again, refugees. This is not a good day. This is not when God took care of everything that concerned them, and all their bills were paid, and all their relationships were healthy, and all of their physical bodies were right how they wanted them to be. This is not when life was easy. It's when life was hard. The believers who were scattered did what they preached, the good news about Jesus, Wherever they went, underline that verse. Highlight that verse. That is a shocking statement of a church that understood how to win. Goes on, Philip, who was a comrade of Stephen, one of the same appointed leaders at the same time as Stephen, the next man up for Stephen's job, who was just killed for doing his job, Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs that he did. Verse seven, many evil spirits were cast out. Well, that sounds like spiritual warfare again. Screaming as they left their victims. That is freaky stuff. And many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy In that city. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years. Amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Don't we all? Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one. The power of God. And they listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. Another clue of demonic activity, by the way. But now... The people believed Philip's message of good news concerning what? The kingdom of God. There's a new kingdom in town, and its king is Jesus. And the name of Jesus Christ, and as a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself, the sorcerer, This demonic magician himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles that Philip performed. Do you know what that sounds like? It sounds like Jesus turning their worst circumstances into a winning situation. It sounds like that the church in their worst moment did what they knew God wanted them to do, and God began transforming more lives than were damaged. Do you think that someone like Philip who's sharing this good news had a hard time finding a place to sleep that night? Everybody wanted him in their house. Do you think that he was, all of a sudden, all of the physical things he would have been worried about if he was ignoring the kingdom of God, were those concerns? Jesus has a way of when you put first his kingdom and his way of doing things, he takes care of all the other things that you're worried about. Right? Jesus turned... This circumstance into a winning situation, it's a big win, right? Miracles are happening. Demons are being cast out because they can't stand against the name of Jesus. Healings of, of unhealable issues are happening. And what's the result? Great joy throughout the city. What would that be like for a whole city to be filled with great joy? Think about that. What, what is that like? What would it be like for someone to say, the city of Seattle was filled with great joy? I don't think it's been that way for a while. Right? Or the city of Tacoma, or Pierce County, or the state of Washington. That was impossible In Samaria, why? Because there's actually a bigger miracle going on here. The Samaritans, as I referenced earlier, the Samaritans were offshoots of the Jewish people. Back in the Babylonian exile, there was a few Jews left in the land. They intermarried with other Babylonian exiles, and they formed kind of a pseudo-Jewish religion. They used bits and pieces of the Old Testament. They formed their own worship system, and it became a competitive system to the Jews when they returned, And so the Samaritans lived right next door. In fact, they lived in the middle of the territory of Israel, and they had their own territory that was dedicated to their pseudo-Judaism. And so the Jews who were trying to to reestablish their culture hated the Samaritans They avoided them at all costs. You see, in the Gospels, when Jesus wanted to get from northern Israel, Galilee, to southern Israel, Judea, he would say, well, let's go through Samaria. And his disciples would be like, no, 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 no. We don't go through there. We take the long way around. And Jesus was like, we don't have time for that. And they'd walk through Samaria, and they'd have these different interactions, and the disciples did not like that. We see in John 4 a preliminary to this where Jesus engages this woman at the well in Samaria. And was, when his disciples come back from buying food, they're scandalized that he was talking to A, a woman, B, a Samaritan, and three, a Samaritan woman with a bad sexual history. They're like, Jesus, you're better than this. What's wrong with you? They didn't like these people. In fact, John and James, in one moment where some Samaritans didn't receive Jesus' message, they're like, Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? These are the guys Jesus put in charge later, right? I mean, a little psychotic. They have a taste of the Holy Spirit, and they want to use it all wrong, which sometimes we do too. The bottom line is this, the Jews hated the Samaritans and like always happens with human nature in charge, under the influence of the kingdom of this world, aka the kingdom of the devil, the Samaritans just hated them right back. And there were abuses back and forth whenever one of them could could get away with it. The Samaritans were not seen as a part of the family of God until Jesus invited them in. Jesus, who is inviting all of the Jews to be restored to the family of God, now sends Philip to Samaria, and he's inviting the Samaritans to be a part of the family of God. And one of the beautiful ways that Jesus changes the world is that Jesus can change former enemies into family members. Jesus is not afraid of his enemies, intimidated by his enemies, scandalized by his enemies. He sees that they are representatives of the real enemy, and he says, come on home. Come on home. Let's get you cleaned up. Let's get you cleaned up and set right back on the right track. And how many of us were called out of being enemies of God to be his family members, and how good a place it is to be sons and daughters of God how good a family it is to belong to. And so Jesus is changing these Samaritans who were the enemies of his people to be his own people. And notice here the significance of baptism, baptism, this baptism in water like we're gonna do in two weeks in that tank in the wall over there is more than just dunking someone underwater in front of a whole group of people to kind of initiate them. No, 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 no baptism is the adoption ceremony it's like a legal ceremony when you have believed in your heart that jesus died for you you've confessed with your lips lord i want your forgiveness and i want to be a part of your family you step into the family setting in water baptism and it is this powerful symbol of the father extending his hand to you and you reaching up and grabbing it and saying yes I want to be a part of this family. That's why we baptize people. It's a symbol of leaving behind your old identity with all of its sins, with all of its scars, with all of its wounds. You leave it behind, and you rise to new life, just like Jesus did from the grave. And just like you will, after this body is done, you will rise to new life for eternity. That's the beauty of baptism. And we see here the story ends with someone who at once was a demonic sorcerer believing in Jesus and being baptized into the family of God. Anybody can be a part of the family of God. It's a beautiful thing, but it doesn't stop there. And I want to end our passage today with these verses, starting in verse 14. Because this was so amazing to Philip and any other Jewish believers. They're like, we we got to get the, the bigwigs in here. So they contact the apostles right here in verse 14. It says, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them for they'd only been baptized in water in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers and they received the Holy Spirit. This phrase, received the Holy Spirit, is a significant mile marker throughout the book of Acts to say that someone has not only come to salvation in Jesus, but they are living the fullness of the kingdom life. The Holy Spirit comes into us when we are saved, and and theologians call that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He will attempt to lead your life if you will allow him to. He is a deposit of the kingdom of heaven that whispers to you when you are afraid or ashamed shamed God still loves you. You have an eternity in store for you. The Holy Spirit lives in you, but he doesn't want to stop there. Scripture and the book of Acts in particular and, and other parts of the New Testament say that the Holy Spirit wants to fill you in a way that overflows out of you like the prophets and Jesus himself said, out of you will come rivers of living water. They were speaking of the Holy Spirit that not only wants to live with you, but to be in you and to flow out of you. And there's an experience of of allowing the Holy Spirit to fully lead our lives, to enhance the gifts that he's given us, to use us to minister the healing of the kingdom of God to other people. And it can look like a lot of different things. The New Testament lists at least 20 spiritual gifts, but I don't think it's an exhaustive list. I think it's indicative of the Holy Spirit wanting to enhance who we are to bring healing to the world around us. Interestingly, too, John and Peter didn't say, well, you have to go through a Jewish discipleship class. You have to get all this mess sorted out. You have to be perfect and sinless, and then you can have the gift of the Holy Spirit. No. They said, you've received Jesus. You're part of the family. Welcome to the family business. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to lead your life in a way that Philip brought life to this community, and now they could bring life to their community and beyond. They could engage not only in the family of God, but in the mission and the purpose of God. And so we see here that these people that had been demon-possessed, that had been stricken with disease and wounds, that had been opposed to the kingdom of God and the word of God prior, that they are now empowered to represent God. And Jesus brings change to the world in that way too, that Jesus can change powerless victims into victorious people. And victorious people go and win victory for other people. They come and declare the victory of Jesus in a way that brings that victory to other people. And this is the way Jesus loves to humble his enemies under his feet. He says, devil, you have won all these people over. You have enslaved all these people to sin. And now I will begin saving them and empowering what used to be the devil's slaves to now be representatives of saving power to the world around them. I will empower these that once were oppressed by the darkness of your kingdom, and I will empower them to bring the light of my kingdom to the world around them. That is a pretty amazing thing. Jesus can change our powerlessness into saving power. And so as All human beings, we are called to receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, be saved and set free and forgiven from our sins. It starts in our heart, it comes out of our mouth, we say, Jesus, I want you to be my king and my savior. And Jesus says, done, I already did it, I've been waiting for you, welcome to the family. But then he says, I wanna fill you with my Holy Spirit so that you can minister my kingdom to the kingdom of darkness around you. And that will occasionally bring conflicts like what we see with Stephen and the early church. Which is why we have to stay focused on the purpose behind it. You know, I would just say that when we read the story, we need to to see Samaria. And what Philip did in in Samaria is a vision for you and the communities that God has you a part of. The way Philip was sent to a group of people that did not agree with him, that did not like where he came from. Philip was sent to a group of people where he didn't have a lot of prior relationships. Philip was sent into this group of people to transform it. And God has placed each of you in different communities to transform it. And and I want to speak sometimes that that idea of victimhood is so rampant in our culture we, we allow, and this is a work of the devil that has been embraced by our culture, we allow anything broken about our lives to define us. And we assume that until that brokenness is gone, nothing good can happen. I can't do anything good. I can't allow God to do anything good in my life. As long as this is still broken, There's what else is there? And can I encourage you to follow the example of the early church and the example of Scripture that says, one thing broken about your life does not define you. There is a lot more to you than the things that are broken about you. There is a lot more to you than the abusive childhood you had. There's a lot more to you than the disease that you carry. There's a lot more to you than with the status of your marriage or the status of your kids or the status of your finances or the status of your career plans. There is a lot more to a human being than those things. And it is a deception to say, until this stops hurting over here, none of the rest of my life is worth living. It's an insult to the cross. It's an insult to the fact that Jesus didn't think you were so far gone that you weren't worth saving. Jesus thought you were worth it. He thought where you were worth it, and not only does he think you were worth it, he thinks that you are equipped and qualified to be sent to other broken people, sometimes before he's finished healing you. We need to begin to see everything around us like Samaria, a community of outsiders that Jesus wants to make insiders. People full of sin and pain and maybe even injustice that God wants to transform through salvation and freedom and purpose and joy. That's the kingdom of God, by the way. That's the kingdom of God that sees the darkest places and comes and brings light to them. That's the Jesus way But we have to remember what makes it all work. And we'll close with this. I want to take you back to verse four I drew your attention to earlier. And the wonder of believers who did not allow their negative circumstances to keep them from bringing life to those around them. They didn't allow the horrible, unjust circumstances they were facing to keep them from proclaiming what they knew was good. Right? The believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Wherever they went. They saw it as inherent to their new identity in Christ that they wouldn't just say, I'm done with this world. We don't get to say that until Jesus says it. And Jesus hasn't said it yet. Whatever the situation that you're facing, and some of them are dire, like some of them are serious, some of them are broken, but whatever the situation, sharing the good news of Jesus is always the catalyst for the needed change. Sharing the good news of Jesus, your job in your setting is to figure out how do I apply the good news of Jesus to this situation? How do I bring the good news of Jesus to bear on this situation? That is your number one job. And there are all sorts of other tools and resources that complement that. The Holy Spirit will lead you in that. But your number one job is to bring the good news of Jesus to bear on the situation. I'm not going to go into it this morning, but for some further study on this topic, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 17, talks about the fact that if we don't do our part, there will be people that don't experience what Jesus has done for them. The Jesus way for us in scripture is defined by sharing the good news in whatever way or whatever outlet God has opened the door for us. We've talked about this in more detail earlier on in the series. You can go back and look at it. But remember that the good news of Jesus is that when you or anyone else submit your life to him, you will be freed of the consequences of your sins and other sins against you and receive new eternal life with him. That is the good news of Jesus. And in some way, shape, or form, put it back up there again. Put it back up there. In some way, shape, or form, nope, not that one. Next one. In some way, shape, or form, that changes everything. It changes everything. It changes how your boss handles you and you handle your boss. It changes the outcome of your family, chaos. It changes the way that you look at our society around you. It changes everything around you. And if you are not somehow looking for a way to engage that in the world around you, you are not bringing the life you are capable of to the world around you. We are neglecting what Jesus did for us by not allowing Jesus to do it for others through us. And this is is interesting. Just like we're in a culture that doesn't like us to believe that that we are representatives of spiritual powers, we also are in a culture that doesn't like us to speak about these things. There's no need for physical persecution because the social pressure has been plenty for most of us to just shh. But the book of Acts sends a repeated message that our job in this broken world is to live as ambassadors of Jesus, not masters of personal pleasure like our culture would tell us to do. I want to remind you this morning that there was a high price paid for you. This guy Saul, that will later become the Apostle Paul, wrote often of the high price that Jesus paid for you. Do you know what that means? It means that you are worth it to Jesus. Even in your brokenness, you are worth it to Jesus. Jesus never gave up on you. He thought it was worth it to give his life for you. And so the question is, what are you doing with that life that he bought for you? What are you doing with it? Are you just kind of laying low and just playing the game the best you can? Are you just sitting in church every Sunday waiting for eternity? Or are you looking to be a catalyst for change in the world around you? Are you living with the purpose of God inside of you? Because your mission and mine is to share the good news of Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit. And when we do, it changes everything. And I'll tell you what, sharing the good news is not always easy, right? It sometimes comes within our own brokenness in the face of opposition, but sharing the good news, that's why we need that second part, the help of the Holy Spirit. We we are meant to live our lives full of the Holy Spirit. We are meant to entrust ourselves to the Holy Spirit. We are meant to step out in faith, to at times speak out in faith, trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to back us up like he backed Philip up. Remember, it wasn't like Philip was laying low in Samaria, hoping nobody would recognize that he was hanging out with Jews last week, and all of a sudden miracles started happening and demons were being cast out, and Philip's like, yeah, that's, that's Jesus doing that. No, it always works the other way. We proclaim Jesus and the Holy Spirit shows up. We step out in obedience to what God has already made clear and the Holy Spirit shows up. So as as we close today, and I ask the worship team to come and, and the prayer team to prepare to come, I wanna remind you that we need the Holy Spirit to transform us. And then we need to allow him to use us to transform others. It's significant that Peter and John were called. And they had to come. And I wonder if this was more for Peter and John than it was even for the Samaritans. Because Philip could have prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter and John come. And I, I wonder if it was God's little joke on them. Because I wonder if they're realizing, man, do you remember when we wanted to just destroy all these people? Like, you know Peter didn't let John get away with that. He's like, John, you literally wanted, like, hellfire to come and destroy all these people. And now Holy Spirit fire is bringing life to their whole community. And John's like, Peter, you did dumb things, too, before we knew, okay? (laughs) Right? Like, you know they had to give each other a hard time about it. But how often do we need the Holy Spirit to transform our perspective of the world around us? We are in a culture that would be easy to be scandalized by, that is easy to be scandalized by. We are in a culture that is doing things that are appalling to the truth and the reality and the purposes of God. And yet we are not meant to stand back and criticize. We're not even meant to just call down hellfire and brimstone. No, we are meant to live as representatives of a kingdom of life and invite as many people as possible to join us. We are not called to compromise on any of our values, compromise on any of the biblical truths, but you better believe that the Holy Spirit wants to transform your perspective to, live, to love people that are in opposition to you. To minister to people that might hate you the way people hated Stephen. And yet Jesus died for them too. He loves them too. Before we respond, I want to just share a little bit about how I've seen this work in my own life. You know, when I was uh, working my way through Bible college, I served tables. I, I, I was in food service and served tables, which is just an amazing experience of humanity, uh, serving tables. Have you ever, you, I mean, you see all kinds. You have every experience. I could tell you some, I probably should tell more crazy stories about that. Lots of them humiliating, by the way. But, you know, I got this job at this restaurant to pay my way through Bible college, and it was a great job. I fell in love with the employees there. I just felt like it was a mission field to me while I was paying my way through school. And, um, and I remember recognizing at one point, and I was a, I'd been a Christian for maybe two years. I remember recognizing I'm the only one that knows Jesus that works here. Dozens of employees, I'm the only one here that knows Jesus, And I kind of just, for whatever reason, just began to feel love in my heart. And some of them were doing all the things that Jesus had saved me out of. The drugs, the alcohol, the sex, all those things that like, I'm like, I need to stay away from that stuff. And yet I felt a love for these people. And I remember not feeling like I had to force anything or had to, to, to uh, you know make, make a scene or any of those kinds of things. I remember th- that I just felt like I just began praying, Lord, give me opportunities to share. I still to this day uh, remember and often pray for Darius and Nick and Michael and Kelly and Zach and Ariel, these different coworkers, just to name a few, that I remember going to work and just loving them. I wanted good things for them. And I prayed for opportunities to share that with them. So I remember different times praying, getting an opportunity to pray for my manager that, that kind of in the front of the house would make fun of me for being in Bible college. He'd like make fun of morals and be like, oh, you know, Caleb can't do that. He's a good, he's a good little boy and things. Like, he would you know, kind of make fun of me. And then behind closed doors, he would share some of the stuff he was going through and would welcome my prayers for him right i remember inviting kelly to church with me and and she had never had a guy ask her anywhere that wasn't a date before and she came to church and was like wait so there's nothing attached to this i remember waiting with darius and nick at bars long after work was over because they needed a designated driver and I didn't wanna show up to work the next day and then not be there. You know, like I remember just having these conversations and some of them led to really deep spiritual moments. All those people I mentioned, I got to share Jesus with. Some of them responded, some of them different. Ariel was a guy that came pretty broken. I just invited him to go to church. He started going to church with me, gave his life to Jesus and now I see him every year at our pastor's conference because he's another pastor in our state, right? Like you just don't know. And we see each other and we're like, nobody else here knows where we came from. It's like we're undercover. Like, how did we get in here? <laughs> One of them, Zach, was a young guy that had a really bad experience with church uh, growing up. And he heard, because some of, the, some of the, the Latino guys that worked there called me Padrecito, little preacher. And so he had heard that I was going to school to, to, for Bible college and he thought I must be some oppressive, proselytizing jerk. Um, and so I said, hey, I'm Caleb, and he said, oh, you're the guy in Bible college? Don't talk to me about God. I was like, I'm Caleb, and over the next six to eight months, we developed a friendship working together, never talking about God, but I was praying for him all the time. Lord, would you soften his heart to you, and I remember on a lunch break in my 89 Honda Civic eating hamburgers, I just asked Zach, like, do you want to Like, pray to receive Jesus as your Lord? Like, do you want Jesus? Do you want to belong to Jesus? Like, I don't even think I said it that well. He's like, yeah, I think I do. We prayed and he received Jesus. And just a few years later, in his mid-20s, Zach was a, a skydiving instructor and he was killed in an accident. And I remember thinking, Lord, I didn't realize then how important that was. Like, I knew it was important, but I underestimated how short of a time that he had. Why do I share those stories with you? Because they did not come out of uh, some great spiritual education. They came out of just trying to be a believer full of the Holy Spirit, sharing it in whatever sphere of influence that God gave me. And that's what he's calling you to do. And Sound Life Church, we're not gonna be slackers around here. Like, I love you, and, and we want to patiently walk with you as you figure it out, but we are not here to be lazy Christians because lazy Christians die when bad things happen, spiritually speaking, first of all, right? We're here because God has given us a purpose and eternity will come and it will be wonderful. But until that point, wake up to the spiritual war that we are living in and fight for someone who doesn't have victory yet. So would you stand with me this morning? And as, as we kind of begin to respond and the prayer team and, and pastors come, I wanna ask you three questions. First of all, have you put your trust in Jesus? Have you put your trust in Jesus today and been baptized into his family? And if not, can you come and have an 89 Honda Civic conversation with one of these people and just say, I don't even know the right words, but I wanna to belong to Jesus. I wanna be in the family. I wanna be in the family. And they would love to pray that prayer with you. My second question is, are you living life full of the Holy Spirit? Or do you believe in Jesus and you were dunked in some water once, but you're like, I don't know what it's like to live full of the Holy Spirit. Have a Peter and John moment. Let them pray for you and ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful thing to do. And lastly, I just wanna say, if you are in a place of brokenness, this message is not meant to minimize your brokenness. And let us pray for that too, because maybe your brokenness is timed for a miraculous healing or rescue that will bear witness to someone else, and maybe today is that moment, and we'd love to pray for that miracle in your life. Whatever it is, here's the reality. You're not done yet. It's your moment to respond to Jesus, and so let's do that together.